You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. It's good to be with you today. My name is Micah. I'm the worship pastor here at NCC. And it is my honor to continue leading us in worship today through the preaching of God's word. Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Now, we've been looking at this letter to Paul from the church, this letter to Paul, from Paul to the church in Ephesus all summer long. And it is my prayer that this series has truly challenged you, that it has encouraged you, that it has convicted you where needed as you have walked through uh, this passage with us. Now, if you were hopping in today and this is kind of your first dive in with us into the book of Ephesians this summer, I'm just going to give us a general outline for pretty well all of Paul's letters. They all fall into a similar structure and outline, and it goes something like this. Grace and peace, followed by, and I thank God for you, then a reminder to hold fast to the gospel, and then a challenge to basically, for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. And then he concludes often with, oh yeah, and Timothy says hi. Now, this is a joke. They don't all go this way. But if I'm honest, it's not very far off. And where we're going to land today in chapters 5, 1 through 21, this sits squarely in the middle of the hold fast to the gospel and the for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid section. This passage has a lot to unearth. As we look at these 21 verses today, this is a a section when taken out of context, when these verses are often divided down and kind of pulled out on their own, it's really easy to miss the mark on what Paul is really saying. In fact, many of these verses are verses that we've had questions about over and over and over again. And again, when you don't view them in light of Paul's overarching theme of being imitators of God, walking in love, We can miss it. And so it's important for us to look at this entire passage. Now, as we read through, again, we're remembering that Paul is building on that theme of walking in love as an instruction for how the Christians should go about life. It is a call to kill the sin in ourselves and to seek to follow after Christ in every aspect of our lives for the purpose of, just like the choir just sang, for the purpose of living not to us, but rather for the glory of God, for his name, for his renown. Now, there's a lot to cover here. Truthfully, we could spend a whole summer on these 21 verses, but I don't think you want to do that today. So we've got roughly 40 minutes, and we're going to dive in pretty hard and pretty fast walking through these. So are we ready to go? I'm going whether you're with me or not, so let's, let's go. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, therefore. Now, you will remember that up to this point, Paul has been instructing the church regarding who they were before Christ and now who they are in Christ. 
He has spoken to the fact that we were dead in our sins and in need of a Savior, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that we are now made alive in Christ. And so as a church alive in Christ, we are called to, verse 1, be or become imitators of God as, be, as beloved children. Now, imitators are ones who copy the words and behaviors of another. Imitators are ones who copy the words and the behaviors of another. And so the church alive in Christ should be one that copies the words and behaviors of God. And Paul tells us that we should copy the words and the behaviors of God as beloved children. Now that illustration is pretty easy to grasp, isn't it? Children naturally copy the words and behaviors of their parents for good or for bad. I take my girls out on daddy-daughter dates, and there was one specific date that I had with my middle daughter, Raina, where she came downstairs and she was dressed just like dad. I mean, she had the ball cap, she had the little jacket on all the way down, I don't know if you can see it, all the way down to her red Converse All-Stars. Right, like she wanted to match and imitate dad as much as she possibly could. Our kids dress like us. They try to imitate us, again, for good or for bad. We've just passed July 25th, which is becoming affectionately known as Christmas in July. And we will all remember the movie A Christmas Story, in which young Ralphie says the word, the big one, the queen mother of all dirty words, as he says. And he gets his mouth washed out with soap. And in this scene, I still remember his mom is asking him, Ralphie, where did you hear this word? And through his soapy teeth, he blames it on his friend Schwartz. And then we hear over the phone, Schwartz just absolutely getting it. And the narrator comes in and he says something. He says that Ralphie had heard that word about 10 times a day from his old man who worked in profanity the way other artists work in oil and clay. It's one of my favorite lines in that whole film. Just as children copy the words and behaviors of their parents for good or for bad, Christians, adopted sons and daughters of God, should imitate God as beloved children. And in him, we will find nothing bad to imitate. The way that we do this, Paul is going to continue, is found in verse 2. He encourages us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our example for how to be imitators of God as beloved children and how to walk in love, our example for love is Christ. It is Jesus who gave himself up for us, who set aside his authority and his glory. He took all of our sin upon himself on the cross and he bled and died on our behalf, atoning for our sins and placing his righteousness on us. This type of love is costly. Walking in love with Christ as our example takes work. It is a difficult thing to set ourselves aside for the sake of others. And so Paul is going to instruct us on how we walk in love. Now, New Testament writers will often use the word peripateo for walk. And this word refers to the ethical conduct. It refers to our words and our behaviors. 
So as we are thinking of walking in love, Paul has given several examples of how to do that throughout this letter already to varying degrees. And he's going to talk through some of those even in this passage today. But he will consistently present that we are at war with our own sin nature. That we are consistently going to bump up against the fact that we were dead in our sin. We are no longer dead in our sin. But we will wrestle with that over and over and over again. But as those who are alive in Christ, we need to remember that we are in fact dead to our sins now, but we are alive in Christ. And so we must continually gospel ourselves. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, killing the sin in our lives as we remember our Savior who died for those sins. A church alive in Christ is forgiven and free from sin. The sins that you and I battle against have been paid for. They were atoned for on the cross, yet we must learn now how to live in that tension of being alive and free in Christ while continually surrendering those sinful natures and desires to Christ as we seek to become imitators of God as beloved children, as we seek to walk in love. Now, Paul is going to walk through some of the sins that we are so easily tempted with. Let's begin walking through them in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For those who are alive in Christ, these sins that Paul has walked through for the church, these things are not befitting. They are counter-Christ, if you will. They should not be in the lives of believers. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, crude jokes. Christians should not do these things. Now, it's possible in this moment that as we read through a passage like that, that you were thinking of an individual or a group other than yourself. Don't do that. It's easy to read a passage like this and to begin to feel anger towards sin or justified in our disgust of someone else's sin. Church, we would do well in those moments to read back through these passages and look at ourselves in the mirror. Because we are all guilty of sin. As we look through these, we must not forget our own sins. See, Christians should not do these things. But we do. Don't we? We shouldn't. But we do. You remember as Pastor Matt walked us through the end of chapter 4 last week, Paul, before launching into this list, remember what he has said before, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave who? You. As God in Christ forgave you. Church, as we look through these verses, three through five, we must all do well to remember 
If not for the grace of God, there go you and I. If not for the grace of God, there go you and I. You'll remember from our Holy Sexuality series last fall, we learned that we are all sexually broken. And we do even better to remember the words of Jesus that if you or I have ever even thought a sexually immoral thought, then we are guilty of a sexually immoral act. You know, there are many right now in our, in our culture that are talking about this film, Sound of Freedom, and the horrors that it presents of child sex trafficking. Now, I've not even seen this film yet, but even just thinking about that content makes my skin crawl. It makes me sick. It makes me angry. I get disgusted thinking about it. But by Jesus' words, if you or I have ever had a sexually immoral thought, we are just as guilty. Our sin is equally as disgusting, and you and I are just as rightly damned. And I'm not trying to diminish the sin that is portrayed in that film. I believe that the church should be on the front lines of bringing those that are innocent and in slavery to freedom. The church should be leading the charge there. But we must remember, if not for the grace of God, there go you and I. We have all been guilty of foolish talk or crude joking. Do we need to raise hands? No? If it hasn't come out of our mouths, at least we have been entertained by it. It's impossible to find just about any TV series, movie, or popular song that doesn't include these things. We've all longed for the things of the world more than we have longed for the things of God, haven't we? We have all been idolaters. And so by this, none of us have inheritance in the kingdom of God. But God. Do you remember where we were, what we've already learned in chapter two? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If not for the grace of God, there go you and I. Paul continues in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Said another way, no truth and stand on it. Don't be deceived. No truth and stand on it. For because of these things, the sin that he just talked about, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now that's an interesting phrase. Sons of disobedience is a Semitic idiom that means a people characterized by disobedience, meaning that their sin, their disobedience was part of their personhood. It defined them. The church alive in Christ is no longer defined by its sin. It is alive in him. It is defined by the grace and mercy, the forgiveness of our Savior Paul wants the church to understand that they have been made alive in Christ, that this type of sinful living should not even be named among them, that the church of Jesus Christ should not be characterized by its sin, but it should be characterized by grace and mercy. And so you see, what if when people thought of Christians, the words grace and mercy came to their mind first? Do you think that's what is there now? 
When people in our world think of Christians, do they first think of forgiveness? Do they first think of mercy or grace? Paul continues in verse 7. He says, Therefore, speaking again as those who are not characterized by sin but are now imitators of God, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Isn't it interesting here that Paul uses identity language? You were Darkness. Not just you were in darkness, you were. It was part of who you were. But now you are light in the Lord. When Paul instructs the church not to be partners with the sons of disobedience, not to be partners with those characterized by their sin, what does that mean? Does this mean that if someone is not a believer that we shouldn't be friends with them? Does this mean that if someone is not a believer, we shouldn't buy goods for them, their business, or sit down and have a meal with them, or engage with them in any way? Maybe. Let me explain. The word that Paul uses here for partners is the Greek synkoinonos. This is a really important word. It means joint partner. It's most often used in the context of business partnerships, but it's also used in the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. This is a deep interwoven connection. These are relationships that by and large are inseparable. They are relationships in which the partners within are not seen as separate entities, but they are seen as one. In a marriage relationship, when a husband and wife, they are no longer two, but they are synchronous. They are joint partners, one flesh. So on June 30th, when Kristen and I came together as husband and wife, I said in 2017, first service, it was 2007. Uh, in 2007, uh, when we came together as individuals, we stopped being Kristen and Micah, and we started, become, we started being the Hasties. And so whatever one of us does reflects on both of us. We are one. We are synchronous. When we think about this in terms of business partnerships, where do you get your coffee from in the morning if you pick it up? Pick it up from Dunkin' or McDonald's or Starbucks or wherever you want to go. Do you often think of who the business partners is, who the business partners are? Do you think about Jill or Bob or whoever? No. In a business partnership, we see one entity. We see one relationship, one entity. So what Paul is saying here is that the church alive in Christ should not be synchronous. They should not be joint partners or seen as one entity with those who are characterized as the sons of disobedience. So does this mean that you shouldn't have non-Christian friends? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that you shouldn't buy from businesses where people are not believers? No, it does not mean that. But what it does mean is that you should not have joint relationships with non-believers in which you are seen as one. If someone would look at you and look at that other person and they would not see any difference between you, something is wrong. This is a call to walk in love as Christ loved us. Paul says instead 
the church alive in Christ should be, as ones who were darkness but are now light in the world, they should then walk as children of the light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We should walk as children of light in verse 10 and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. As I was studying this passage, something that was interesting to me, several early copies of this letter have this Greek word photos that's used there for light, children of light, and it's replaced with pneumatos, which is spirit, children of the spirit. And so it could have read, walk as children of the spirit, for the fruit of the spirit is found in all that is good and right and true. Now, for us, this would have several implications. The first is that it would tie readers' minds back to Paul's earlier letter to the church in Galatia, where in chapter 5, verse 22, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And so we would have a, a carrying and a connecting theme. But this also has Trinitarian inklings to it. Because as we learn to walk in love as imitators of God the Father, we should then walk as children of the light a term that John uses for Jesus in his Gospels. We would walk as children of the light of the world, and then this is done through the power of the Holy Spirit, because the fruit of him is produced in every imitator of God who walks as a dearly beloved child. Now, still instructing us on how to do just that, Paul continues in verse 11. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, this word expose here means bring into the light. Do you remember we are walking as children of the light? And so this is not just a revealing thing, but is rather the call to bring, dark, bring no part of unfruitful, unfruitful works of darkness, expose them to Christ. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, exposed by Christ, by truth, by goodness, by righteousness, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So here again, Paul calls the church to bring sin into the light of Christ. This is another passage that is often taken out of context. This passage is not instruction on pointing out the sin in the lives of unbelievers. This is not permission or free pass to drag the sin of non-believers into the light, hoping to shame or guilt them for it. That is not what this is. Unbelievers do not need their sin exposed. It is prevalent. Who is Paul writing to? Christians, the church. What's the context? Instructing us on how to be imitators of God as beloved children who walk in the love of Christ. And so as we seek to become imitators of God, we must expose sin, kill sin, bring it into the light of Christ that exists within our own hearts. We're really good at pointing out sin in everybody but ourselves, aren't we? It's easy to watch the news. It's easy to look at someone else and go, man, I wish they would get their stuff together. Look in the mirror, church. 
Paul started in verses 3 through 5 with sins that were far more public. Did you notice that? Sexual immorality, foolish talk, crude joking, idolatry, again, things of which we are all guilty. And now he moves to these deeper crevices. Because he knows that in each and every one of us, there is still hidden sin. There are still things in our hearts that need dealt with. Sin that needs brought into the light. Not so that it can be ridiculed or shamed, but so that it can be seen in the light of Christ. All that is good and right and true. So that our sin can be brought underneath the authority of, underneath the forgiveness of, the grace and love of Christ. So that we might walk as children of the light so that we might walk in love as imitators of God. The end of verse 14 says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Those words remind me of another passage found in the Gospel of John. At the end of chapter 7, moving into the beginning of 8, we have the account of the woman who is caught in adultery who's dragged out into the open by the religious elite who hope to shame her and kill her for her sin. And they hope to trap Jesus. And so they bring her before Jesus. And see, they thought they were exposing her to the light to shame her and to guilt her. But instead, they exposed her to the light of the world who met her with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Now notice, he doesn't ignore her sin. Jesus tells her, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. He doesn't call it something it's not. But rather, he meets her with grace, mercy, and forgiveness and calls her to something better, to walk as a daughter of the light. Church, we should do this too. When we expose sin, when we bring it into the light of Christ, we must first begin with ourselves. Always searching our own hearts. And then we move into biblical community with other trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that could speak truth into our lives and hold us accountable to sins that maybe you and I, we don't see. We're blinded by them. And we need other trusted brothers and sisters to go, hey, you're off base here. You need to repent. But if we ever get the inkling to expose sin in the life of an unbeliever, We need to be sure that our hearts are burdened by and overflowing with the love, grace, and forgiveness of Christ that we have received. And our words and actions had better convey that. Otherwise, we do more harm to the cause of Christ than we do good. We should stand for and on truth in love. Remember that what we say and how we say it are equally important. We can say things that are true and it can come across as daggers. We must speak truth in love. Paul cautions the church in verse 15. In this thought of walking in love, he cautions us that there is a way to walk in love. Verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but is wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here is that reminder again to hold fast to the gospel with the coupling of the for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Paul calls us 
to be imitators of God and to use wisdom. He knows that the challenges that he has laid out are difficult to discern. He knows that as we try to be imitators of God and to walk in love, it's going to be hard. It is going to cost us things. It is difficult. It is not easy. It's not always cut and dry. In fact, most of the time, it's extremely messy and uncomfortable. But sometimes that's better that way. And he says that this is why we must understand what the will of the Lord is. So how do we understand what the will of the Lord is? By knowing him. How do we know him? By studying his words to us. You cannot imitate someone that you know nothing about. You know, it's just so hard to, to do this walk in love thing, to set myself aside. Have you spent time reflecting on the scriptures where Jesus models this for us? Have you gone to him in prayer over it? Have you sought, sought his heart over it? Yeah, but, but it's this whole thing. It's just, it's so hard. I don't, yes, it's hard. But do you know the one you are trying to imitate? Do you know him as he has revealed himself, not as we would dream him up to be? Church alive in Christ spends time getting to know the Lord by studying his word, by knowing him. This is how we use wisdom. How do we know wisdom? How do we navigate evil days? By understanding the heart of our God through his scriptures, through prayer. Continuing in this mindset of using wisdom to navigate evil days that we live in. As we try to walk as imitators of God, Paul is going to speak directly to the difficulties that we face. Again, knowing this is always often messy. But when we face hardship, when we face trial, when we are overwhelmed, we often try to cope. And so Paul is going to speak to that. He's going to speak to our comforts and to the things that bring us courage and hope. Verse 18, he says, and do not get drunk with wine. For that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now let's look at the second half of this first. The Greek here doesn't speak to being filled with the Spirit as if it is something that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us because we are emptied of him or drained of him in some way. In fact, nowhere in Scripture, when it speaks of being filled with the Spirit, does it speak to the volume of his presence in our lives. There is nothing that we need to do nothing that we can do to be filled with him. We do not need to be baptized with water. We do not need to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit. We are filled with, Spirit, with the Holy Spirit as believers at salvation. He is with us. We are filled with him. And so then what does this passage mean? Paul, Paul here writes, and the Greek translates, that we are filled by the means of the Spirit that he is the one who does the filling of us. When days are evil, when life is hard, he is our comforter, he is our courage, he is our peace. The Holy Spirit does that for us. What does he fill us with? Ephesians 3:19 and 4:10 point to the believers being filled through Christ by the means of the Holy Spirit with the fullness of God the Father. 
that we are filled with the fullness of God the Father. So how do we know then that we have this fullness of God? We will be imitators of him as beloved children walking in love. Jesus in John 8 would tell us, those who love me obey my commandments. Why do children naturally try to imitate their parents? Because they love them. They admire them. They look up to them. They look to them for how to navigate life. Christians should naturally try to imitate God because they love him. Because they admire him. Because they go, man, I cannot do this life on my own. I need an example of who to follow. But let's back up for a moment. At the beginning of verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Why do you think Paul brings up alcohol here? Remember, Paul is instructing Christians how to walk wisely during evil days. He acknowledges that following Jesus isn't going to be a walk in the park, that it is going to bring with it some hardship and trials. And so with that context and with that in mind, the other question that we should ask is, so what are the things that we look to alcohol for? To remove the stresses of life? Take the edge off? To find comfort or courage? See, when we do this, we can quickly allow a drink or a spirit to become a source of comfort, courage, and peace that only the Holy Spirit was meant to fill. We have sought refuge in a source that cannot fill the void. And Paul tells us that this should not be true of Christians, of a church alive in Christ. Now notice here the issue is not the consumption of alcohol itself, but rather it is drunkenness from alcohol that is debauchery. Now that word debauchery is extremely important in understanding this passage. Debauchery means an excessive indulgence in sinful pleasure an excessive indulgence in in sensual pleasure. And so what this means is that any good gift of God can become a sinful pleasure when it was used in a way that it was not created to be used. Food is a good gift from God. It is necessary for us to sustain life. But excessive, when we excessively indulge ourselves in it, we walk outside of God's plan for us and for it, and we can quickly fall into the sin of gluttony. Work is a good gift from God, and we are commanded to work as unto the Lord. But when we excessively indulge ourselves into our work and we allow it to consume our identity, we can very quickly walk outside of God's plan for us and it as we can fall into multiple sins, like ignoring Sabbath rest or sacrificing our families on the altar of the work that God has given us to support them. In effect, we say that we know how to run the calendar and the days of our lives better than the God is who created the days. Our spouses and our children are good gifts from God. And Paul will talk more in the coming verses about our familial relationships and how they're to be used to point to the beauty of the gospel and our submission to one another and to Christ. But when we excessively indulge into the good gift of our families, 
We can end up placing all of our hopes, our dreams, our joys, our aspirations onto our spouses and our children. And in doing so, we are guilty of idolatry because we place a weight on them that they were not created to bear. Our families are not our God, but they are a gift from God. And we should steward those relationships in a way that brings him honor and glory. I mean, we could go down the line, couldn't we? Our finances, money, is a good gift from God, but the love of it is the root of all evil. Our love for country, living in America, is a good gift from God. It is a grace, but when we place our identity as Americans and our love for country over our love for God, we are again guilty of excessive indulgence in the freedoms that we have been gifted, and we turn it into idolatry. We forget who we are. Any good gift of God can become a sinful pleasure when we use it in a way it was not created to be used. So back to verse 18. Should you drink alcohol? That's the question that often comes when people read this verse, right? That depends. Can you drink it without excess? Can you hold it rightly and not allow it to become a master over you? A good question to ask is, do I run to alcohol more than I run to the Holy Spirit for comfort, courage, peace, and guidance? If the answer to those questions is yes, then maybe the answer for you is no, you shouldn't. Just because we can do something does not mean that we should. Sometimes the question is not, is this a right thing for me to do, but is this a wise thing for me to do? But this passage isn't really about alcohol. We like to make it about that. But it's not really about that. The passage is about being an imitator of God, walking in love, walking wisely in evil days. And those things inform how we view every area of our lives. There is nothing that is hidden from the grace of God. There is nothing outside of his authority and outside of his sovereignty. And so Paul tells us to not seek comfort in things that were not meant to bring us comfort, but rather to be filled with the Spirit. And then as he concludes, he's going to look at verses 19 through 20, and there's a lot that can be said through these verses. Today we're going to look at the heart of it for the sake of time. These are evidences of those who are imitators of God walking in love. Okay? So a church alive in Christ will address one another, verse 19, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The people of God are a musical people. It's one of the reasons why we sing when we gather. We are commanded in scripture to sing. I mean, think about it. Where else in culture do you get together with a large group of people and just sing? Right? Other than take me out to the ball game, it doesn't really happen. It is exclusive to the church. It is a gift of God for us to remember the truths of Scripture and to proclaim His honor and glory and praise. This is why we sing. Music has a special place in the hearts and lives of believers. I mean, think about this. Have you ever sent a song to a brother or sister in Christ because you knew it would encourage them? Have you ever opened up the Psalms and when you had a dear brother or sister that was going through a hard time, you sent them one of those scriptures from the Psalms because you knew your words were not enough and that they needed the truth of scripture. And so you send the Psalms. 
These are marks of those who are filled by the Spirit. Music naturally flows through us as an outpouring of our praise for who our God is and for what he has done. A church alive in Christ, verse 20, will give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ followers carry with them a heart of gratitude. We're going to look deeper into this as we go into the fall in one of our fall series. But when we look at the aspect of gratitude, Christ followers are marked by this. It is part of an aspect of being filled with the fullness of God because it unites us as believers. It helps us to understand and to know the grace that we have received. And we express that gratitude to God and to one another for his work. Believers have hearts of gratitude. And so if you have a heart that consistently lacks that spirit of gratefulness, but rather is filled with cynicism and selfishness, again, I implore us, let's go back to the mirror and go back to the scriptures and say, just like David prays in Psalm 139, Lord, would you reveal all unrighteousness within me and lead me in the way everlasting? A church alive in Christ, verse 21, will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think this verse said another way, put in Micah's translation if we could do that. I believe it could read, for the sake of the gospel, for the reputation of the church, for the glory and the renown of the name of Jesus, can we just keep the main thing the main thing and lay down division over lesser items and focus instead on the priority of making much of Jesus every day to everyone. And this means that we must set aside ourselves for the sake of all seeing Christ in us. We must set aside ourselves for the sake of all seeing Christ in us. Remember the whole point of all of this is to help us to become imitators of God as beloved children walking in love, walking in the example of Christ. So why would we do that? Why does Paul spend 21 verses on walking through this whole idea of imitate God as children do? Walk in love. We strive to be imitators of God as beloved children with our ball caps and our black jackets all the way down to our red Converse all-stars so that a watching world might look at us and they would see our Savior. They might look at the way that we manage our lives, the way that we go from day to day, the way that we navigate evil days with wisdom, and they would see Jesus. They would look at how we meet each other and our sin with grace and mercy and forgiveness, and they would say, man, there is something better to this life than I have ever known, and they would see Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once remarked, if Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live in sin any longer. I must arouse myself to love and serve him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? NCC, when a watching world looks at us, do they see Jesus? 
when they see us in line at the grocery store or when we're stuck in line and in Belden full of traffic late to a morning meeting, who do they see? When they see us at a little league game and our kids' team is losing, when they engage with us in our business practices, when they read our posts on social media, who do they see? When we talk about very hard and divisive things in our nation and in our world, who do they see? If a watching world was given a front row seat, sit in your living room on any given night, who would they see? Would they see Jesus? Would they see imitators of God as beloved children who are so enamored with their God that they can't help but want to do everything to be just like him? When a watching world looks at us, do they see Jesus? As we close today, I want to give us some time to think on that. In light of the marvelous mercy and grace of our God, the band is going to come and they're going to lead us. We're going to stand together and sing. And as we do, here's what I would like you to do. I'd invite you to prayerfully take inventory of your heart. You can either do that in your seat as you sing. You can do that up here in front of the stage if you feel the need to kneel and pray. Maybe God has convicted you of sin and you go, I need to come and confess that. You can do that here. If you'd like to pray with someone, our prayer team is going to be back at the red table in the back. They'd love to pray with you. When the world looks at your life, do they see Jesus? I ask that question not to condemn us. Romans 10 would tell us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven and free. We are made new in Christ. But I ask these questions to challenge us, challenge myself in love. When a watching world looks at us, do they see Jesus? It's not about living a perfect life. We can't do that. If we could have done that, we would have no need for the cross. We are incapable of living a perfect life. It's not about doing everything right, but it is in the middle of our broken, sinful lives under the grace and mercy of Jesus, pointing with every bit of it to a God who is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. On our best days, people should look at us and they should see Jesus. On our worst days, people should look at us and they should see Jesus. It's not about living it perfectly. It's about resting in the love and grace of our Savior who did and who died so that we might be free. Let's stand together and we're going to respond to these truths today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.